Mm. Now, with all the weight of disordered time as my container, on mundane experiences and memory, time hope perspectives under empire, and a series of sci-fi considerations. Hi, what are you wearing? I'm in shorts with an elastic waistband and a worn t-shirt tucked into that, both black. One is more faded than the other. My favorite pieces of black clothing are mostly faded, but I get hung up sometimes on going outside in different shades of black, haunted by that basic tenet of dressing for outside in the city that requires monotone looks to match in tone. I remember people in high school trying to deduce where they were going to get the exact matching tone of shirt and accessory piece to match the particular cherry red or cerulean blue of their new shoes, and others getting clowned for trying to act like their socks and shirt weren't two different tones of citrus and neither matched the sneaks either. I had to wear uniform all before high school and was dressed in layaway and thrift store and foreman mills otherwise, and I remember one time my dad on his Monday visit came by with both a black and a white pair of low-top Reebok freestyles that he'd gotten on a buy one, get one. I was like, finally, I'm out of Bobos. These are brand name. <laughs> like staring at the Reebok logo. But I was like nine and did not articulate those words at all and was more experiencing an emotion that I may now be more accepted by the kids on my block who were more uniformly outfitted in Keds and Nike and Reeboks already and not puff-painted, no-name canvas tennis shoes from the craft store that my mom had made me, which I loved, by the way. The sun is shining from out the soupy, chill overcast above, and I feel untethered of self-loathing and numbness and preoccupied detachment today. Taurus season is running its course, and Gemini season approaches. I tend to feel energized around this time of year when school was drawing to a close and the honeysuckle starts to flower. Also, I know and admire like 40 different Tauruses out there. Happy birthday to y'all. <laughs> I've never been without a Taurian friend somewhere nearby. One recurring gift of Taurus season has been the opportunities to catch performances, talks, workshops, and other cultural events that would have otherwise been held as one-time limited gatherings in often variously inaccessible and far-off places like metropolitan art spaces or $200 ticketed concert halls and so on. Michelle Handelman's feature-length documentary, Blood Sisters, Leather Dykes and Sadomasochism, is one of those events that was supposed to be relegated to a London film art festival, but instead is currently hosted on Vimeo. It's full of mean hotties, including Patrick Califia, and I have watched it twice so far. <laughs> of course, there was the Jill Scott and Erica Badu versus event as well, which I live-tweeted along with a solid third of my Twitter friends, swooning amidst 90s and 2000s high school graduation-era deep feels and pure joy. And then somewhere in the middle, Jill Scott was like, there are a lot of writers watching right now who are holding on to stuff because they don't know how people will accept it. And it doesn't matter. You have to get it out. You're just holding on to something that really doesn't belong to you anymore. 
And that made me inspired. Ooh. <sighs> Image description. The edge of a wooden desk cluttered with a basket holding a hairbrush, a fidget spinner, and surrounded by things like nail polish, tech dongles, small bottles of skincare oils. My cell phone is in the midst of it, and the screen shows the split screen from the stream of the Jill Scott versus Erica Badu John. Alive to witness. On that very warm summer preview day this past Saturday, when it was like 85 degrees in full sun, I rode my bike over to Clark Park with the intention that I would journal Chani Nicholas's prompts for Venus retrograde in Gemini if the park didn't seem too full of selfish fools. Now, I live closer to Belmont Plateau, maybe equidistant, than to Clark Park, but I was hoping to maybe see some familiar faces from the 19139-19143 zips because I had just been in an argument and was feeling so out there. Instead of seeing anyone while journaling, I had to aggressively shoulder off an obnoxious dog one time too many and move from a sunny spot to a shady spot where I finished up. The foghorn wah-wah of the unmasked white woman sorry when I turned to confront her. What is that inflection? What is it? Where did it come from? Like, last night I attempted to listen to a popular queer podcast and I did listen to it. It was fine. I had tried listening to it a couple years ago, but was too annoyed by the host's inflection to commit. A bored, dragging on, and overemphasizing of frictive S's, and full stop consonants, and you can just get to the fucking point and let your guest talk instead. I associate this with a liberal arts college women and gender studies living on the East Coast type of queer inflection, but I don't really think that's it. And I wonder if I'm just being really mean. <laughs> but I tend to be terse and short with people who talk like this because it grates on my nerves. Some iteration of and transformation of the uprising valley girl flexion some sort of play on talking like rich, spoiled people. And maybe these people were raised middle class. And um, <laughs> when I listen to myself talk, I have a very hard time imagining why someone would make that their regular speaking voice by choice. But who am I to judge? Meanwhile, I made it to the final chapter of Dahlgren a couple days ago. In the past, I told friends Dahlgren is not the book to start reading Delaney from. Dahlgren makes me feel as bored and malaise as it does to be living in the city with nowhere to go and nothing to do but get into trouble. Dahlgren is hard to follow and all this other shit. I don't think I made it past 300 pages last time, if that. Now, with all the weight of disordered time as my container, I began to reread it a few weeks ago. Long stretches on the roof, at the kitchen table, in bed in the middle of the day, upon waking up and feeling unable to get out of bed, and the book was already by my pillow. My dear Spacer and I agreed that reading Dahlgren is chewy, 
and savory and demanding of one's time and attentiveness. For one, the main character himself has a novel way of experiencing time and space, and you have to adjust your reading to keep track with his narration. When I'm done, I'll write a book review. For now, I'll say, if you enjoyed The Faggots and Their Friends Between Revolutions, and maybe also like playing haunting fantasy PC games like uh, Mist, remember that one? And maybe you're also into recent United States history with attention to white flight and divestment of cities from the civil rights in Vietnam era. Or if you were a teen delinquent and or runaway who has carpooled from one polyqueer acquaintance group to another in search of yourself, Dahlgren may be of interest to you. Image description. The wooden desk from before, this time strewn with an open notebook full of notes, a laptop to its right, a tarot deck, a closed leather journal, a few pens, some small house plants, and a little toy push-button water game, one from an arcade. With the energy gained from reading Dahlgren, along with the pure inspo from Jilly from Philly Miss Scott, I've been typing up Arc 1 of my All That's Left manuscript, a couple dozen or a couple hundred words at a time. Tying up arc one requires journaling about the hard details necessary in arcs two and three, things I've never really wanted to flesh out, stuff like encounters with physical group violence or bothering to imagine the possibilities of techno-state infrastructure and so on. Maybe you've been with me since I started calling what I'm working on fantasy rather than sci-fi. Dahlgren reminded me of the kind of fantasy I mean. Some things inexplicably happen. And no, there will not be a reason. What's more, too many of the inexplicable sci-fi type details of my composting cyborg world have ended up getting viable backstories all on their own from real-world events. Today, for instance, I read an article that Jean D'Angelo shared called Screen New Deal, Undercover of Mass Death, Andrew Cuomo calls in the billionaires to build a high-tech dystopia, talking about how New York Governor Cuomo is hot to trot with letting surveillance AI technologies envelop the state as an answer to life post-pandemic. The article goes in, Anuja Sonalkar, CEO of SteerTech, a Maryland-based company selling self-parking technology, recently summed up the new virus personalized pitch. Quote, there has been a distinct warming up to the humanless, contactless technology, she said. Quote, humans are biohazards, machines are not. Quote. It's a future in which our homes are never again exclusively personal spaces, but are also via high-speed digital connectivity, our schools, our doctor's offices, our gyms, and, if determined by the state, our jails. Of course, for many of us, those same homes were already turning into our never-off workplaces and our primary entertainment venues before the pandemic, and surveillance incarceration, quote, in the community was already booming. But in the future under hasty construction, all of these trends are poised for a warp speed acceleration. 
This is a future in which, for the privileged, almost everything is home-delivered, either virtually via streaming and cloud technology, or physically via driverless vehicle or drone, then screen-shared on a mediated platform. It's a future that employs far fewer teachers, doctors, and drivers. It accepts no cash or credit cards under guise of virus control and has skeletal mass transit and far less live art. It's a future that claims to be run on, quote, artificial intelligence, but is actually held together by tens of millions of anonymous workers tucked away in warehouses, data centers, content moderation mills, electronic sweatshops, lithium mines, industrial farms, meat processing plants, and prisons where they are left unprotected from disease and hyper-exploitation. It's a future in which our every move, our every word, our every relationship is trackable, traceable, and data mineable by unprecedented collaborations between government and tech giants. By the way, I just cannot get over how sinister it is that Google formed this clandestine parent company that quietly got involved with defense contracting and statecraft advising, and they named that John Alphabet like the the fundamental of language you know it's real St neil stevenson style white male technocrat cyberpunk hell and we all know stevenson likes to collaborate with the pentagon so the article goes on the electronic privacy information center recently got access through a freedom of information act request to a presentation made by eric schmidt's nscai one year ago in May 2019, its slides make a series of alarmist claims about how China's re relatively lax regulatory infrastructure and its bottomless appetite for surveillance are causing it to pull ahead of the United States in a number of fields, including AI for medical diagnoses, autonomous vehicles, digital infrastructure, smart cities, air quotes, ride sharing, and cashless commerce. The reasons given for China's competitive edge are myriad, ranging from the sheer volume of consumers who shop online, quote, the, the lack of legacy banking systems in China, which allowed it to leapfrog over cash and credit cards and unleash a, quote, huge e-commerce and digital services market using digital payments and a severe doctor shortage, which has led the government to work closely with tech companies like Tencent to use AI for predictive, air quotes, medicine. Predictive medicine, hmm. not preventative. Hmm. That's my side. The slide notes that in China, tech companies have, quote, the authority to quickly clear regulatory barriers, while American initiatives are mired in HIPP compliance, HIPAA compliance and FDA approval. End quote. Then the slide that they show in the article has this bulleted list with one of the first of the bullets saying mass surveillance is a killer application for deep learning. <sighs> Must I rally your consideration to why the IG face filters some of us amuse ourselves with exist? Must I also caution you, dear reader, to remember that the future is not lost for us and the horror of these warmongers' imaginations for it are not allowed to take hold of our own. Alice Sparkly Cat's May horoscope for Gemini was short and sweet, 
saying, there's no such thing as the future. The future is a made-up story that we tell ourselves so that we understand time in a certain way. Your job in May is to play the role of the time scientist. If you were to create another dimension, where would you put it? If you stop believing in the future, then what do you start believing in? Do you start believing in the things that we used to represent the past with? Primordial connections between insects and plants? Conversations between different types of soil? Your job, Gemini storyteller, time scientist, is to choose the types of stories we bring into the new world. And then there was this emergency mag uh, <laughs> emergency. And then this emergence magazine essay by Jake Skeets, The Other House, Musings on the Diné Perspective of Time, ponders, Right now, it seems hope is hard to feel amid all this grief. Perhaps the social media questions and posts should not be about the impossibility of poetry, but about the impossibility of hope. Hope, however, connotes a type of linear time wherein the subject that hopes is looking forward toward a future without the current challenge. This kind of hope, I fear, is linked to the onslaught of capitalism and the genocidal ideation of the American dream. So maybe an answer lies within the reimagining of hope through the reimagining of time. And that's the, that's the quote from that article. And if you uh, don't all know that by now to fuck with me is to make a pilgrimage viewing of Rashida Phillips' presentation on dismantling the master's clockwork universe, well, please go look that up and, and watch it or read it. It's on YouTube. Last night, while digging through suggested YouTubes, I did come across this user with a combined history podcast with slides plus simulated historical Philadelphia architecture project channel with bonus septa critique content, too. It's really got a lot to offer. Um, and I started to watch their episode about the history of banking and commerce, specific to the first U.S. banks that got their start in Old City here in Philadelphia. History really does repeat itself. <laughs> Did I say before how my awareness of historical events of empire and plague have that they've given me a sense of calm? Understanding how demonic the forces of state violence, imperial technology, and consolidated power have always been gives me the space to stop worrying about what might happen next and focus on what needs doing now, such as moving funds, food, manpower, and resources to the most vulnerable. Anyway, in this episode, there's an attentive overview of just how much Andrew Jackson was a, quote, a dumb idiot, hold on, hold on, a dumb moron idiot asshole, end quote, with specific regard to agitating his followers into backing an avoidable economic crisis, much like the administration today. You can also really get a sense of how this country was funded by people like Big Daddy Tech Patriot Eric Schmidt over there from Google by watching this, John. <laughs> uh, it's time to take a break.
dejen que el llanto me bañe el alma. Quiero llorar, traigo sentimiento. No more feeling sorry for yourself. The other day, a queer youngster asked me to proofread 25 pages of a work in progress they're hoping to get published, and it put the idea in my head that I should offer editing services. I had to remind myself, like, oh yeah, I am editing people's work for zines and books and at work when I was employed, and oh yeah, I designed and edited an entire book, and that book received a Lambda nomination. Like, come on! <laughs> Quarantine has me examining my tendencies to belittle myself, and my accomplishments, and my avoidance of acting like or claiming a level of professional experience with skills to offer and charge for. <laughs> Does anyone have links to websites of editors you've worked with so I can research them? Or do you work as an editor and wish to bequeath unto me any salient mentoring advice? I'd appreciate it. A couple hours ago, I was checking my Twitter notifications to see that there's a book review by Corey Qureshi of my Transitional Times Transitional Body Collection in the Broad Street Review. It says, The city is changing. New faces, apartments, businesses, these changes are often framed as progress or advancement, but what about what's left behind? What happens to those who can't afford the tickets to the future? In the COVID era, remote lifestyles radically alter the flow of life in Philadelphia. The past is being pushed out at a rate that quickens with society's digital consciousness, which makes M. Teas's short story collection Transitional times, transitional body, especially timely. Hmm. It's much longer than that, but you know. As far as I know, no one has reviewed my book anywhere on the internet or in print. I'm making a big deal of this occasion because who else will? I don't have a press agent or a speaking tour-powered international following. Eee! So my thanks to you, Corey. 
Okay. <laughs> Speaking of reviews, I updated that little corner of cyborgmemoirs.com with some recent and relevant reads that I've done or that I've made, that I completed. Hmm. Um, some of them include We Both Laughed in Pleasure, The Collected Diaries of Lou Sullivan, Testo Junkie by Paul B. Preciado, Her Smoke Rose Up Forever by James Tiptree Jr., and James Tiptree Jr., The Double Life of Alice Sheldon by Julie Phillips. And all these book reviews I've tagged as trans memoir, even though the Tiptree entries are short story collection and uh, biography, respectively. I want to point out that I'm posting reviews direct from my official URL in a move to not have content exclusively hosted at AMA, you know who, um, I guess I'll just say it, Amazon-owned sites like Goodreads. Not only does Amazon outright own or own stock in some of the fundamental online platforms in the United States and elsewhere, but an enormous portion of the very content and files of the web itself is hosted on Amazon Web Services. How we manage to divest from their invasive stranglehold of the very infrastructure of the Internet itself is something to meditate on. In the past, the robber baron monopolies were supposedly broken up by the government. In the present, the U.S. government loves and believes in Amazon. When you watch shit like The Matrix and The Animatrix and all the other sci-fi comics and anime and movies that depict the small-minded horrors of a robot uprising that enslaves humanity, did you ever think it might mean something like the enclosure of public society and private life by a global entity like Amazon? My essay for Mask Magazine about the romance of the colony ends like this. You have spent all these years holding on to a mounting dread while the Internet's transformed into a convenient, everywhere, totally identified companion reality that optimizes your behavior for social control. Maybe it was never for your benefit. You write these words because you wonder what it's like to be a prepubescent person in this era of coercive data-for-service internet. You wonder when it will become criminalized to not maintain an active social media presence. And what will you do then? Is anyone else thinking about a time when everyday communication and movement will change because the platforms and the devices are too harmful to use? I'm certain it won't be the first time. It might not happen. It happens all the time. Image description. An up-close view of sunny, stony cement sidewalk with its cracks full of small weeds there is a stone ledge in front of a front yard with more weeds and plants growing, but the focus is on a piece of trash on the ground, packaging for a ninja face mask. So, don't be afraid to ask for help, y'all, to ask for what you really need. You can start by thinking it. What I really need is blank. You can write it down, and definitely say it out loud. It's not so bad, and it's worth trying too. Till next time, Rose Emoticon, Monk. <laughs>